What's going on, everybody? Thanks so much for hanging out with us for another episode of the Justice Set Conversation. For those of you back for more, much love. For those of you here for the first time, welcome. Today we release episode 46. I'm really excited about this release. It's with longtime Major League pitcher and now current member of the Minnesota Twins front office, LaTroy Hawkins. And I got to know LaTroy because he lives in the DFW Metroplex. So through mutual friends, we got put in touch. Uh, he's been a, a big supporter of my charity, the Sandlot Children's Charity, and uh, have had a lot of really great conversations with LaTroy. And uh, I spoke to LaTroy shortly after a lot of the uh, the social issues came to the forefront in this country. And as a black Major League Baseball player, as someone who played Major League Baseball for more than two decades, I thought he would be someone with outstanding perspective. Uh, and I really, really loved hearing what LaTroy had to say uh, about being a black baseball player. But it wasn't just about that. It was about a kid who grew up in Indiana in a blue-collar town with a blue-collar family, uh, an underdog to make it to the majors, let alone have the career. Awesome person and someone who had a lot to share. But before we get started, just a reminder, I would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing to the channel, liking the video, commenting on the video, or just sharing the link to this interview or whatever other content you find uh, on my YouTube channel. You can catch all of the Justice Set conversations in addition to other sports-specific interviews and commentaries. Check out the channel. Hopefully there's stuff for you and uh, your friends, but would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing, liking, commenting, or just sharing the link. It all makes a difference, and I really appreciate your continued support. Now, without further ado, episode 46 of the Justice Set Conversation with LaTroy Hawkins. All right, LaTroy, so you grew up in Gary, Indiana, uh, and I know Indiana is such a big basketball state. I know uh, you've got some basketball in you, but what was it like growing up in Gary? Oh, what was it like? Oh, man, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but um, you know what? Back then, all the kids played all the sports, baseball, basketball, we played peewee football and and Pop Warner football and all that stuff. And the steel mills were the main uh, place of employment for most of the residents. Uh, we had four steel mills in the vicinity. Um, uh, my grandfather worked in a steel mill for 37 years. My uncle retired after 39 years in the steel mill. And I got another uncle that retired. He did 20 years in the steel mill. So, you know, pretty much the steel mills were the, the big uh, income uh, boosters for our, our community. And then all of a sudden, three of those went away and there was only one left, which was with U.S. Steel. So that's when my my city started to change um, with the drugs, unemployment, and that's when the city started to deteriorate. Did you, you know, with with so many family ties to the the steam uh, steel mills, was that something that you thought in your head? I'm, you know, I'm going to be just like them, and and I'll put in my time and work twenty, thirty, however many years in the steel mill, or was that never something you really considered or even wanted? So in our area, when you get ready to graduate, your senior year, at some point in your senior year, there was a tour that, you know, seniors took of the steel mills. And my grandfather refused to let me go. He said I couldn't go. So I didn't take that field trip with the rest of my classmates who went on the field trip to, you know, tour the steel mills. 
in our area, which was actually U.S. Steel. And so it was never something that I was, I was always pushed away from it as, a to, as opposed to being pulled towards it. My grandfather said, no, you're going to do better than I did. And it wasn't a job. He said that wasn't a job for a young man um, with a you know, good head on his shoulders. And he wouldn't let me do it. <laughs> I thank him to this day. And you mentioned, you know, everyone, all the kids played sports and you seem to excel, not just at baseball, which, you know, you made a career out of, but, but several sports, including basketball. Where did you get the athleticism? Does that run in the family or, or were you kind of an anomaly in that regard? You know what? I was probably, I wouldn't say an anomaly, but I was the one that pretty much stuck with it. And our cousins or uncle was, you know, they played, but nobody stuck, stuck with it. And I do know one thing that separated me uh, from the rest because I played all three sports and they were like one sport oriented. And I think that was the key for me to, you know, to garner my, my athleticism, being able to play three sports and combine all those three to be better at each sport. And, you know, you had a tough decision or maybe it wasn't a tough decision, but you you had a decision to make. Do you go to college and play basketball? Because my understanding is you had opportunities to do that. Or do you, out of high school, begin your professional baseball career? Was that a tough decision? What do you remember about uh, ultimately choosing baseball over basketball? It was funny because baseball wasn't on my radar. I had no clue what being drafted meant, any of that stuff. So mentally, all the way up until the day I got drafted, I was locked in on going to Indiana State to play basketball. I was locked in on that. Baseball was in my rearview mirror. I didn't know when I was taking my government econ test final the day of the draft, the second day of the draft, that that moment would change my life. I had no clue. My thought process of the draft after that was, whoa, I get to go straight to the big leagues. No <laughs> concept of the whole minor league system thing. I was just completely illiterate to the to the fact of, you know, you know, the process in baseball. I was locked in on going to college to play basketball. And that all changed within a week. Week, So, you know, it was it was a pretty crazy time in my life, uh, giving up something I had played since I was, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper um, and walking away from a sport. Now, these days you can't get away with, you know, not knowing your – a prospect or might get drafted with social media and the way things have changed. I imagine it was different back then. Did you not realize that you were good at baseball or, or at that level? Or was it just that, like you said, you were so focused on basketball that you never even took time to consider it? I knew I was good at baseball, um, but I was realistic. Like, okay, this is my area. How the rest of the world playing baseball. So I didn't know how I, I, I you know, how I ranked up against the rest of the world. I knew how I ranked up against some of the guys in Chicago because I played against them. But as far as the rest of the world, I didn't think about the world at that time. I think about the United States. I had no clue. But I knew that I matched up pretty well with the rest of the world in basketball, the rest of the United States in basketball. I knew I, I, I was on that level. But um, as soon as I got to Fort Myers, after I signed my, my contract, man, when I got down there, I saw guys doing things I had never seen before, fielding <laughs> ground balls and turning double plays and guys throwing 93, 94 miles an hour. I thought I was already in the big leagues. I had never seen anything like that. And I was so far behind on a development standpoint because being up north in Indiana, we didn't play that many high school games. I think the most high school games I played in the season was 17. 
And then once we got past that, I played another maybe 30 in the summer. So I was playing 47 combined games of baseball. And that was only from March till late July. After that, you know, it was back to basketball season. I played basketball from, you know, early August all the way till, you know, March until we started to play baseball again. But, um, you know, I, I feel, I guess I can say now I was confident. I was, I'm pretty happy in the decision that I made. And my grandfather helped me make that decision. He told me long time ago, my senior year, that I was a better baseball player than basketball player. I was like, how do you know? You don't know anything about sports. <laughs> he was like, I can tell you one thing. I know how to count. And baseball teams have more spots on the roster than a basketball team. I can count. I'm like, oh, okay. Makes sense. And it worked out. I can count to 21. That's uh, the amount of years you spent in the big leagues. And and before we, we really get to baseball, I got to ask you, I read that you played against Glenn Robinson in high school. And, and for people who don't know, the the big dog, Glenn Robinson, was uh, the first overall pick after a, a really good college career uh, in at Purdue. What do you remember about playing against uh, Glenn Robinson? Um, Glenn and I were the same age. We played bitty basketball against each other bitty basketball against each other, uh, junior high school basketball against each other, and I was definitely a better player up until that point. Well, our freshman year, I was a better player. And then in between our freshman and sophomore year, Glenn grew about five, six inches. So he grew from six feet tall to about six, five, six, six. And that changed the whole game for him. That completely changed the game. And it changed the game against us because he became unstoppable with his height his shooting ability, his ball handling skills, he became unstoppable. At six foot, he was stoppable. At six five, six six, with those same skill set, he was unstoppable. And he went on to have a great sophomore year, junior year, and then senior year ended up being Mr. Basketball in Indiana and headed off to Purdue to play for the great Gene Cady. Uh, Latroy, you, you mentioned your grandfather a couple of times. It seems like he had a, a pretty big impact on you. How would you kind of characterize your relationship with him? Jay, it's funny you ask that because my grandfather just passed away April, uh, May 9th. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. He was 94 years old. He was 94 years old. And I guess, I mean, he was my everything. My father wasn't in my life, my biological father. And people was like, whoa, they had to be tough for you and this and that, but it wasn't because I had a, a legitimate, even better replacement my grandfather, my mom's dad. He was, a, he, you know, he raised me and, you know, just how I go about my business, things I do. Um, he wasn't perfect, but he was perfect in my eyes. And, you know, it was, it was a month, June the 9th that he had, he's been gone and it's definitely had a, a real effect, but you know what I think about all the good times and the, I think about how I was blessed that that um, my grandfather was able to see my entire career. And I played a long time, and he was able to see my entire career. And I got to spend a lot of time with him, you know, in retirement because, you know, I started going back home more. I've been going back. I was going back home a month, I mean, a week every month to see him and see my grandmother and see my, my mom. Uh, just something I said I was going to do once I had more time. And in the last, you know, probably the last 18 months, I've had that much time. Well, I can cut that out of my schedule and, and go see them and check on them. And it it was, you know what, I'm glad I did it because I got to spend a lot of time with him. He had started to, you know, his body started to break down, but his mind was always sharp. And he had the memory. I mean, people say the memory of an elephant, but my grandfather had a hard drive. 
Um, and it was one terabyte. I mean, he can remember what he was doing in, you know, he's born in 1925. He can remember what he was doing in 1941, uh, June of 1941, when he was walking, you know, to his buddy's house to go play baseball. I mean, to go um, go hang out and, and, and do whatever they were doing back then. And he just had that type of memory. And, you know, I do miss our long conversations. And, you know, all my teammates was, you know, when I got into professional baseball, I kind of fit right right in off in the clubhouse because I could talk trash with the best of them. <laughs> and they were like, where did you get that from? I said, y'all don't understand. I was raised by the Hall of Fame trash talker and my grandfather because he was Hall of Fame. He could talk. <laughs> trash with the best of them and that was our that was like the gist of our conversation you know we talked trash and he enjoyed that type of banter and him teaching me that being in the clubhouse and then being being out of the clubhouse i had a lot of banter for him and we would sit there and talk trash even up until you know three weeks before he got sick you know we were talking trash to each other and i was funny because i was giving him a shower it got to that point i had to give him a shower and he was still talking trash and i'm like dude you can't be talking trash and somebody Another grown man is wiping your butt. Oh man! And he's I'm, like, oh, man. he said, man, I've done a whole lot of other things for you, so you're just repaying me back now. You're just repaying your debt. I'm like, okay, I got no problem repaying my debt. So, well, I, that was, that's my granddaddy. I'm, I certainly hope you and your family have been able to to share some stories and, and celebrate his life. I'm sorry to hear that, Latroy, but uh, it, you know, it, it seems like there's a lot of great memories that you can kind of think back on to, to put a smile on your face when it comes to him. Yeah, and I like talking about him because, you know, that makes, you know, that lets me know how, like you said, how big of an impact he had on me because he was my father figure. I mean, he raised me for 40, 47 plus years. And, you know, a lot of the reasons why I, the way I am are because of him, you know. So, you know, the good and the bad. I always tell him, when I spoke at his funeral, I said my grandfather wasn't perfect now. He was a long way from being perfect. But I loved him through his imperfections. That's really cool. Uh, I, I, one more question before we get to baseball, Latroy. Mm-hmm. I, I read you've got uh, your brother has been incarcerated really since the beginning of your career, and you make a point. Yes. You, you maintain a relationship with him. You go to see him. I, I think it, at minimum annually, if if not more common than more uh, frequently than that. Uh, and I'm just curious. You know, sometimes when that happens, people. Hey, you know, they, they don't maintain that relationship, but it, it just seems like the love that you have and, and, and hearing you talk about your grandfather for the, the, you know, people in your family, the people that, that are close to you is really special. And I'm just curious, what has the relationship that you've maintained with your brother kind of taught you or maybe the experience of, of going to see him, you know, over time, what are some of the, the things you've learned from, uh, the relationship with your brother, Ronald and, and, you know, everything that's kind of gone on. Jay, he, he actually got out. He was released February the 5th. So I left the Super Bowl and flew to Indiana, picked up my mom, and we drove up to Michigan to be there when he got out that Wednesday morning. Yeah, that Wednesday morning. Um, he was in the halfway house, and then COVID hit. So they sent all the guys that were in the halfway house, they sent them home to home confinement. And I'm just I'll go back, but this story has a lot to do with my grandfather as well. So – he went to stay with my grandfather and them like May the May the eighth. So he had a whole month he got to spend with my grandfather before he got sick, and he had been around my grandfather since, um, you know, before he was locked up. And 
my grandfather will always say when he talked to him, hey, man, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you. And COVID hit. If COVID hadn't hit, Ronald wouldn't have been released from the halfway house until May 18th. Well, we buried my grandfather May 19th. And Ronald was able to go and spend, he stayed at his house and helped take care of him for a whole month before he got sick. So it's amazing, you know, how, how God works. And I think that was, that was key for my brother. It was huge for my brother and definitely huge for my grandfather. So I feel like he said, okay, he can, you know, he can, you know, he gets time. It's time. If it's, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now because I waited long enough to see my grandson released and free again. But, um, he's doing well. I'm just, it's just like all the positive things about being able to get out and and be free, but he's still not free because with the COVID hitting, we have what thirty million people unemployed, and those people who have been in the workforce, he hadn't been in the workforce, so now it's a, it's an issue of him getting a job because there's so many other people looking for jobs. So it's kind of one of those situations where um, it's real tough. I mean, he has it a lot easier he got a lot easier than everybody else that's getting out because he has a brother. But for those young men who don't have it, I mean, what are they doing? Well, how it's hard for them to get a job. And, but that experience is, it all goes back to, you know, in the early nineties when guys were doing, you know, small crimes and, and they were getting this excessive sentencing with the, with the, with the um, Clinton um, uh, excessive sentencing bill and all that stuff. And then Reagan with the drug stuff. And all that stuff just hit our community so hard. And, you know, you give these guys, okay, we're going to give you three years if you don't, if you admit to doing something wrong. But if you don't admit to it, if you feel like you didn't do it, you don't, you go to see to a jury of nobody that looks like you. And then they convict you of this and you go from doing three years to 25 years with the excessive sentencing. So, I mean, that gets into more what's going on today in this country. But, I mean, like he was a victim of that, that excessive sentencing. And every time you file an appeal, they don't look at those appeals. All they do is push that stuff to the side. And it's, it's really, it's really sickening because now when Hillary was running for president, her husband got up there and apologized for the, the excessive, the mass incarceration, incarceration. But what did that hurt? That helped the, hurt the black community. And then the guys that did take the three, three year, took the government deal for something they didn't do. Those same guys got up and they couldn't get a job because of their felon now. So the system definitely doesn't work. And, you know, I say my brother's in a better position because he had a brother that played professional baseball for 21 years. But at the end of the day, it's about, you know, the one person that you're close to. It's about the, the masses, and the masses aren't represented. Well, I appreciate you you sharing that, uh, you know, that not only that your thoughts on on this subject, which is obviously uh, – uh, you know, been been a big part of the the headlines here recently, but also sharing stories uh, on your grandfather. I know you're you're used to answering baseball questions, but uh, you know, there's there's a lot bigger than baseball, uh, and and I appreciate you sharing your uh, your your perspective and, and stories on that. Uh, I I do want to get to some baseball. Uh, okay. All right, so if we went through your entire career because it was so long, we'd be here. For a long, long time, but I'm curious. You know, you started as a starting pitcher, and mm-hmm. you then transitioned to the bullpen, and, and a majority of your career was spent in the bullpen. What was that like for you? The the decision that was made 
and was it something you embraced at first, or, or what do you remember about that transition from the rotation to the bullpen? What I remember about that transition is that <clears throat> I had to make that transition because I was not good at starting the game. I was not good at it, Jay. And my numbers were so – they were very bad. But I went out there every five days. I didn't miss a start the whole 98 starts. I mean, every five days I took the ball. Um, I remember in spring training that year, I would start a game, throw three innings, come out, and then the next time I would piggyback a starter and throw three, three innings in release and didn't know at the time that they were preparing me for the – my big change to the to the bullpen and I made the team out of spring training and TK calls me in his office when we got to Minnesota, Tom Kelly, and he says to me, we're going to move you to the bullpen. I think with your athletic ability and the way your arm, your arm moves, uh, it's going to be a great um, transition for your career. And I was fine with it, but I asked him one question. Do I have to make the, the transition in the big leagues or the minor leagues? And he said, that's up to you, son. But for now, you're going to try to make it in the big leagues. And the rest is history. You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't take it as a, as a slight, you know, not being able to start. I tried to use what I did learn as a starter and try to apply some of that, what I learned and from through experience and try to use that, you know, in my bullpen role. And over the years, I had to make some adjustments, and that's the name of the game, making adjustments. And, you know, I put my head down, and, you know, as a player, you want to get to three years because you get to arbitration. <clears throat> Once you get to arbitration, you want to get to free agency, which is at six years. Once you get to free agency, now you're looking like, man, I get to free agency, I mean, I have six years in the big leagues. I need four more years to get fully invested in the pension plan at 10. So that's your driving force i mean we all know we're trying to win games but on a personal level that's your driving force once you get to six years okay i need to get 10 years to get the full pension and then after that everything else was just okay i'm gonna go out you know i wasn't thinking about arbitration i was past that wasn't thinking about free agents i was past that 10 10 year tenure i was past that and you know those next few years were you know not that the other 10 years wasn't dedicated on winning but now you start checking off the box of the other things that you hadn't done in your career, and that's where I was the last 10 years. And I think the nature of you know relievers, you know, you sign shortstops, center fielders, pitchers to these long deals, but you know, relievers don't get eight-year contracts. And so I think any reliever who played as long as you did uh, probably did it playing for multiple teams, maybe with the exception of, you know, guys like Mariano Rivera and, and whatnot. But 21 years, I think 11 different franchises at the big league level. Uh, you got traded a bunch. You, you had a lot of one-year deals. As a person with a family, what what are those two things like? You know, getting traded and then even the one-year deal where you know, hey, I, I can't really take the time to settle down in this city because I don't know if I'm going to be here next year. Well, I had a couple. I had three multi-year deals. So I was, well, maybe one, two, three, maybe four. If I'm correct, I could be off a little bit, but um, I enjoyed it, man. I embraced that being able to experience living in a different city. Um, I felt like when I was in Minnesota for those first nine years, I was kind of sheltered to just, you know, knowing the Minnesota people, uh, you know, teammates and, and, you know, GMs and scouts. Well, when I started going to those other teams, I started, it opened me up to a whole nother world that, you know, when you're in your own world, you kind of like, 
we kind of closed off. So being in those other 10 cities, man, that opened me up to so much. And I met so many people through baseball on and off the field. And that's one of those things I probably wouldn't experience had I not, had I stayed in Minnesota my whole career. So I look at it from that standpoint, I was able to meet so many other great, you know, players, coaches, trainers, um, parking lot attendants, ushers, fans. So I had, a, you know, as, as much as I did move around, I made the best of it because I embraced everything that some people would, would you know, be turned off about having to switch teams every year, every couple of years. And I imagine there's not a ballpark you would go to where you didn't know at least someone, whether that person is still with the same organization or, you know, they've moved around. I mean, I, that was one of the things I was going to ask you is, if you had a guess, how many different relationships did you develop through these teams? And, and I don't expect you to actually answer that, but I, that that is something that stands out to me, whether it's a guy like you or, uh, you know, Octavio Dotel, who I know played for a, a bunch of teams and guys like that. It, the, the ability to meet people seems like it would be such a, a unique part of that experience and, and not just the people, but the perspectives and the appreciation for where you know, different people come from in different parts of the country and, and whatnot. And it seems like, I guess, that that was something that you really took away. I definitely embraced that, having friends from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Panama, uh, Japan, uh, Taiwan. I got a chance to meet and hang out with, with people from definitely di- uh, all walks of life, too, and different cultures. I enjoy that. And you know what? Like most of the clubhouse guys, the clubhouse guys are some of my best friends. You know, the, some of my trainers, some of my best friends. It's just like those relationships that you build, especially not just, you know, with other players. Because those relationships are pretty much organic, you know. I mean, being able to to, to um, be friends with the clubbies and stuff like that, I think that goes a long way just because those people can't do nothing for you. You know, they're not on your team. They're on your team, but they're not on your team. You take it upon yourself to become close with them. And I made sure I took care of them. And, you know, just develop a relationship because, man, we had so much fun. Without the clubbies and the trainers, i tell you what, baseball players are boring. I think the clubbies <laughs> and the trainers, when I played, we had so much fun. Just being able to go in the training room where, you know, everything, not everything goes, but you can, you can be yourself and, and talk, and that's where the media can't go. And being able to go in the, the, um, the clubhouse guy's office and sit there and chill and, and, and talk trash and, you know, just have a good time. I, I still do that now when I go to Minnesota. Rod McCormick is our home guy. I go in his office. Yeah, like take over his locker. Me and him share a locker, everything. So, you know, it's just fun to be around those guys. I, I Man, I had so much fun. I go back to Ranger Stadium. Well, Kelly over there on the visiting side. I go and hang out in his office with all his guys. Yeah. So it's a great time, man. It is a good time. I enjoy it, and I actually miss it. All right, so. And I didn't miss playing, Jay. I, I, I still don't miss playing. But you miss the people. I miss, I miss the people, and I miss hanging out in the training room, and in in the in the, in the uh, clubhouse guy's office. That's weird. But my first year out, I came over to the Rangers Stadium a couple times to see a couple teams that I played with, and I was fine going in the clubhouse. But that same year, when the Blue Jays came, well, no, the Twins came to town later in the year, and I went in the in the training room to say hi to the to the uh, trainers. And that was the first time that I felt kind of, I felt kind of different because I remember like being in the training room was so much fun. 
it was so much fun. I was like, God, I missed this. But walking around the clubhouse, I never had that feeling like, ooh, I missed this. No. Walking in the training room, I missed that. I missed that. All right. Now, you know, you're, you're able to meet all these people. We talked about the 21-year the career. You played in over 1,000 games, pitched in over 1,000 games. You're one of 16 pitchers to do that, and you're one of only three who did it while also starting at least 90 games. Some of these guys, a lot of the guys on the list were pretty much exclusively relievers, but you also had the mileage of uh, a starter for those years, the beginning of your career. I, I got a few questions regarding uh, the the games uh, that you amassed over your career. So you ended up pitching in 1,042 games. Uh, first of all, getting to 1,000 games, what, what did that mean to you? Um, you know, it meant a lot. It was special for me because I never made an all-star team in all those years. I never made an all-star team. So to, for a personal accomplishment and just knowing how many guys who, who pitched in the big leagues and to make, to get to that point, um, that was pretty, um, fulfilling for me. I don't care about not making an all-star team, but you know, a lot of guys on that, on that list or made, made all-star teams can't say they actually appeared in you know, a thousand plus major league games, especially from the pitcher's point of perspective. And to do that, you have to have some longevity, a lot of luck on your side, and you got to stay injury free. And I was able to do that through the most part of my career. All right. So a, a few quick hitters here, or if their stories certainly don't, don't feel like they've got to be quick, but, uh, which game among those that you remember was maybe the most challenging game for you? Oh, that's, and those type of questions, Jay, are hard to answer for me because everything I refer to goes back to uh, probably the last five years of my career. <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> any of the things from the late 90s and, and 2000. You know, it's, it's um, most challenging for me. I think um, pitching in cold weather was challenging for me because I was – I needed sweat and perspiration and all that for my, you know, to have a real good feel for the ball. So anytime it was cold outside, um, dry, I just had, I had, it was challenging for me. I had to find a way. It just didn't come naturally. I had to figure out a way to make it happen, whether that's, you know, um, hoping I break a sweat so I can use some sweat to get some grip or, you know, I didn't use anything illegal, but I would, you know, in Colorado, if I knew I was going in the game, I would pour water right on my kneecaps. So I have something that was wet and I can always reach for. So anything when it's dry and cold, we're always challenging games for me. All right. Is there a game, LaTroy, that is special to you for like a random reason that, that no one watching at the time, you know, the broadcasters weren't, you know, sharing that this is a milestone for you, but for whatever reason, it was special for you to, to pitch in, in a particular game? Um, in Maddox's, uh, Greg Maddox, I'm trying to think, was this 3,000 strikeout or 300 win? I got to save in one of those while I pitched. I can't remember. So that was special. I can't remember if it was 3,000 strikeout. That don't mean it wasn't important because I don't remember what it was. But I knew it was something special with, with Mad Dog. And I grew up watching him. And to be able to be a part of his special moment in his career I'll I'll never forget that, and it was in San Francisco. I forgot what it was for. It was either three thousand strikeouts or three thousand or three hundred wins. Um, and Paul Mahler getting his three thousand hit in Kansas City in nineteen ninety 
six, I think. And it was a triple. And that was like one of the one of the first big milestones that I had ever been a part of. And it was Paul Molitor, who, who was a who's an incredible dude, great teammate, great manager, uh, and a great friend. You mentioned these people. I'm curious, uh, and and maybe it's it's one of those two. But you know, when guys change teams, they get the chance to you know, as we've talked about, play with different players and. Uh, you know, in some cases they did grow up watching those guys or they were big fans of those guys. And it's just as it might be for a fan to meet that player, you become a fan in those moments. So is, is there a guy, was it Maddox, maybe Molitor, who when you met them and, and, and you were you shared that clubhouse with them, you're like, oh, my gosh, I, I can't believe it. I'm, you know, I'm a teammate with oh, this guy. Oh, oh, oh. So first it was Kirby Puckett because Kirby was from Chicago, not too far where I grew up in Gary, and I watched him all the time. So it was Kirby Puckett. And um, Mike Jackson became my teammate, the closer. He became my teammate in Minnesota. That was pretty cool because I hadn't pitched with other many other African-American pitchers. So to have him come on and, and come over towards at the end of his career with the career he had was huge for my growth as a pitcher because I got a chance to sit down and chat with somebody who who looked like me and and understood completely what I was going through, not just, you know, in between the lines, just all, out, outside of the ballpark as well. Um, and then it was Greg Maddox. I left Minnesota and went to Chicago. And I remember we signed Maddox late. And in spring training, they put his locker right next to mine. And the only other time I had met Maddox, and I was – shaking i was sweating it was like the craziest thing i met him doing a um a um strike meeting in 1994 in phoenix arizona i went out there with kenny lofton and we were at the meeting gene orza was talking and afterwards during lunch we went to get lunch and maddox was there and kenny called him over to our table and he came over and shook our hand i'm like whoa that did not just happen greg maddox i watched him <laughs> when he was a cub that is that is that just didn't, that didn't happen. So that was probably the only person I um, I was like that about. I remember meeting Doc Gooden for the first time. I mean that was pretty cool, but nothing on the level when I met Maddox and Kirby Puckett. So that game was um, Maddox's 300th win. It was August 9, 2004, in San Francisco. Good times. Did you look it up while you were talking? That's some impressive multitasking. <laughs> I can do two things at one time. I can't do three and four. All right, Latroy, you mentioned something there when when you you referenced Mike Jackson, uh, and it's something that I, I remember Delino DeShields, who used to play for the Rangers, told me uh, is, is that you know he he said something. It it stuck with me that whenever he walked into a room, he would always look around and see. Uh, you know, if there's another black person in there, if there was another person who looked like him, not not because, you know, he didn't want to go where where white people or Hispanic people or Asian people were, it's just 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 to kind of take a look. And he said that, you know, from when his dad played to now, when he'd look around a clubhouse, there are fewer and fewer black people. And uh you know, I, I think with what's going on, the the best part of this is that it seems like people are listening. Uh, more than ever before, and and I, I certainly hope that this is not hollow, and this momentum 
uh, it is not fleeting, and it, it does result in tangible differences. And I want to get to this on a baseball level and then on a broader level uh, here quickly. Uh, on the baseball side, you're now in the front office. You've been a part of this game for decades. You 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 probably have learned more and, and understand more about this game than uh, a room full of people could ever know. What can what can baseball do to get the numbers of African American participation? back up instead of the decreasing trend that we've seen over the last several years? So I'd give major league baseball a lot of credit, especially since Rob Manfred's been the, been the um, commission. They have a few programs that they're doing and they've been going on for like four years now for African-American baseball players. They have, for one, they have the breakthrough series, which it's over Martin Luther King's weekend when the kids have, uh, Thursday through Monday off, uh, Major League Baseball bring all uh, these African-American pitchers and catchers in to work with myself, Marvin Freeman, Darren Oliver, uh, Flash Gordon, um, Kenny Hill, and then the catchers work with uh, Lenny Webster, uh, Charles Johnson, um, who else, um, Daryl Miller, and the last couple of years, Bruce Maxwell has been coming out uh, lending his time. So Major League Baseball is doing a really good job trying to get African-American kids back in the game. Uh, and then during the summer, um, on a bigger level, they bring in pitchers, catchers, and, other, and all the other position players to the EBI, Elite Development Invitation. And that's at Dero Beach at the old Dodger Town, which, if I'm not mistaken, Major League Baseball has purchased. And – we go through a whole two weeks. You got the younger group, uh, 13, 14-year-olds, and then you have the older group, and you work with all these professional um, retired big leaguers, and you go through a spring training format, and you play games. And just, you know, working with African-American kids, trying to get them on that, you know, you know get them on that, that next level. And they bring in college coaches from the historical black universities to see some of the kids. And, you know, a lot of kids are going to college, and a lot of our guys are getting drafted. Um, last week, I probably think about 10 of our guys got drafted. And that was just this year. The previous years, we've had more because, obviously, it was more rounds. But Major Baseball is doing a really good job. I mean, it's a really good – you don't hear about these leagues, but they're well, – these um, camps, but they're there, and they've definitely proven to have some um, – showing some benefits of getting, you know, black kids in professional baseball. And hopefully – you know, once they get into professional baseball, they can develop into big leaguers. And Tony Regan, the OGM for the Anaheim Angels, he's over the program, and he is uh, his right hand man in the in the with this is Dale Matthews, who is Gary Matthews' senior son, and um, and Ken Du, another guy that works there. So they're doing a good job at trying to get African Americans uh, black back in the game, and I'm part of that, and I'm I'm happy about it because. Um, like Delano was saying, when he played it was the, the percentage of blacks in the game was at 14, 15, 16, 20 percent. It did dwindle. Um, it dwindled for a num uh, numerous of reasons, and we can get on the reasons forever. And I always say because Division One baseball only give out 11.7 scholarships, and they only give out um, uh, they get partial scholarships, so the players got to finish paying the rest. So that's one reason kids go to basketball and in football because they get full scholarships. But at the end of the day, there are much bigger problems to the, to the reason, and we don't have a solution. But Major League Baseball is doing a really good job. 
All right, last thing, Latroy. I know this is something you're passionate about on a on a broader level. Uh, the the message has been let's listen. You know, shut up and listen. Uh, you know, what can we do to you know, as we referenced earlier, not let this just be some hollow uh, thing that that you know people use as a, a way to curry favor on social media, but actually do something. What what message would you share as a, as a black man living in America that you think is important for people like myself, a white person who is, is fully in support of, of equality and making this country a, a much better place to live? What would your message be? Well, part of my message would be, um, you know, a lot of times we say we're not racist. Well, most people aren't racist. But now is not the time. We're not in a space where saying I'm not I'm I'm not a racist, or I don't um well I'm not racist is not where we are now. We're in a time where I'm anti-racism, and with that being said, calling out your friends who are racist, who are bigots. When they when you're at your dinner table, when your family member who that 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 bigot sitting at your table, call them out on it. You know, call them out on it. Tell them, let them know that they're part of the problem. The reason why this country is divided like this is because of people like like you. And for my Caucasian brothers and sisters, listen, just because racism doesn't affect you doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because obviously we know it exists. We know it exists. And then a lot of times I hear, you know, you hear people talk about, well, why should I be punished something that my ancestors did? And I'm like, Wow. You got a great point. You shouldn't, but don't get it twisted. You have to acknowledge they did something, and it's the reason what they and the, what they did is the reason why our country is like this. You have to understand that. And I'll just tell you: educate yourself. Read some books that you'll probably be uncomfortable reading. Read some books. It's documented at the you know the country, and then a lot of times, and I tell my my Caucasian brothers. Don't say, well, Dr. Martin Luther King said this. He was nonviolent. He was this. He was that. Remember, it was a Caucasian man that killed Dr. Martin Luther King. He wasn't. He was nonviolent. You know, he was you, nonviolent. You mentioned education, and that's one of the things that I've thought about. I, I, I hope that the school systems in America uh, do a better job of teaching kids about what went down, what has happened, what injustices have taken place as a way to help ingrain in them at a young age, you know, what's wrong and, and what's right and, and, you know, why, uh, what has happened in this country that we love, but is not perfect. And you mentioned with your grandfather, you loved him for, you know, for the, the good and the imperfections and, and you can right. love this country but you need to be able to recognize the imperfections and teaching something about uh, this country that is not glittering is okay and will make this this place, this world a better place. And I really hope that the education of what has happened and, and what the black community has been through uh, still, unfortunately, as we speak, is something that changes and becomes a, a part of what kids of all minority groups, you know, white black, Asian, Indian, whatever, everyone. I hope that they learn about this stuff because I think that education is a huge part of turning things around in the right direction. It is a huge, it's, it is, it's ginormous. And, and I tell people like, you know, we talk about like 
with the statues and things like that, that, that are being taken down now. And people, people are upset about it. And I pose to them, would you want a statue of a person that raped and killed your family members? Would you want that? That's essentially what we do. We're glorifying people who have done atrocious things to other humans simply because of the color of their skin. We shouldn't be glorifying those people. We should not be glorifying them. That's, and I know that's what we're accustomed to, but just because we're accustomed to it doesn't mean it's right. It's not right. It's definitely not right. But you know what? At the end of the day, when I was talking, I was coaching at the CSBI, the first uh, baseball league that opened up the college summer league two weeks ago in College Station. I had to address the group. It was 100 young men and probably about, 10, 15 maybe were minorities. And I challenged the Caucasian kid, go meet some of the guys that don't look like you. Because I can tell you from 21 years, well, 25 years in the game of baseball, we have more things in common than we do not. But you'll never know if you don't take that leap of faith and get to know somebody that doesn't look like you. So I beg you guys, take time to go visit one of the Puerto Rican kids here, one of the Dominican kids, or one of the African-American kids that are here. I, I beg you, go see, and I tell the, African, the minorities, go hang out with some of the white guys. There's nothing wrong. We have way more in common than we do not have in common. And you won't learn that until you have a conversation with somebody and be open-minded in your conversation and understand that, yes, we come from two different places, but that doesn't mean we can't get along. And that, mean, that doesn't mean you can't acknowledge you know, the trauma that I've had in my life because of, you know, the way our inequality and stuff like that. And we can go from there, but get to know other people. And that's why I try to certainly, you know, stress that, you know, that's what those guys need to do. But I'll tell people, my daughter's 18 years old. She's been protesting for three weeks in LA. Uh, one of my best friends here in Dallas, his son goes to UT. Uh, he just turned 21 on Sunday and he's protesting. That next generation is completely different. They're more diversified. They're more diverse. They're more diverse. They understand. They're all fighting for the same thing. They see the inequalities, and they understand it, and they're fighting for change. So this next generation, as much as we thought they were, you know, the millennials or the Generation Z, they're soft. But no, they're not soft. They showed the last month how strong they are, and they understand they're stronger together. They struggle with their Caucasian brothers and sisters walking next to them because when it's all African-Americans walking, everything comes to a deaf ear. But when there's, when you have your African, your, your Caucasian brothers and sisters who are, who are tired, tired, as tired as the African-Americans are, that's when the needle is going to move. When the minority, when the majority gets tired and join the protest, that's when things are happening. And that's what, what we've seen happen over the last month. That's some powerful stuff from LaTroy Hawkins. Really, really appreciated LaTroy sharing his story coming up in Indiana and pursuing an athletics career, ending up going down the baseball path. And wow, you know, 20 years in the big leagues. It's pretty remarkable. It, it obviously says something about LaTroy, the player, but it really says something about LaTroy, the person, because, uh, you know, guys don't hang around that long 
uh, if people don't want them there. They don't want their influence there. And towards the end of Latroy's career, he was a good pitcher, but he wasn't dominant. You know, he wasn't at his peak, but people wanted him around. Uh, and hopefully in listening to that conversation, you got a glimpse as to why. So there you go, episode 46 of the Justice Set Conversation. We are releasing 47 later in the week. We'll chat with Mike Bassick. He gave up Barry Bonds' record-breaking home run to become Major League Baseball's all-time home run king, a record that might be tarnished, but we talked to Mike about that experience growing up with a Major League dad and more. That's coming up later this week. Thanks so much again for tuning in to episode 46. We'd really appreciate it if you would like share, subscribe, or even just comment on the interview. It would really, really help. It would mean a lot to me. Uh, But until then, be safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you later.